It is me, myself, and I for the Hoopercast Movie Hour. This is uh, intended to be the last episode of August, so you're welcome. You made it. You made it. And from here on out, until I say otherwise, we're going back to one episode a week. It was never a... <laughs> as, as, as with previous content blitzes, blitzen, blitzeye, it's never been a permanent decision. It's always just been we have a lot to talk about and we don't want to do overstuffed episodes where we're covering multiple movies that don't really have anything to do with each other. It's almost September, so that means back to one per week for now until we experience another um, full stack of content. So it's just me for this episode. Um, Dustin was called away, so I'm going to go ahead and put this one out. Anyway, I wanted to talk about a few movies I saw recently, and I'm going to talk about three movies this evening. How about that? Three movies. We'll start with something relatively recent, okay? First thing we'll talk about here is Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. What is happening right now? I don't know. Let's try and leave and see what happens. Wow, that's an expensive door. Mm Mm-hmm. From the studio that brought you Shrek, Kung Fu Panda, and Madagascar. Hi, I'm George Beard, and this is my best friend, Harold Hutchins. We just make comics and try to make each other laugh. And this old guy is Mr. Crook. George Harold! He's the worst principal in the world. Ever since you've attended this school, you've been responsible for one prank after another. Some of those must have been really hard to pull off. Like that tiger? Oh, that tiger was crazy. Ah! I told you I would get you one day. I'm going to have you two placed in separate classes. We're going to annihilate your friendship. George, do something. Put the pin down, Mr. Krupp, or we'll hypnotize you. (laughs) Stop, baby. What's happening? I don't know. When I snap my fingers, you will obey our every command. You are now the amazing Captain Underpants! I honestly didn't think that would happen. This year. Come, sidekick! We gotta stop him! What? Out of the road, Bozo! Why, thank you, vehicle person. Yep, we should probably go get him. Their greatest creation. Captain Underpants, you can't actually fly! I take to the sky like an ostrich! Wow, he is super dumb. He's now their biggest problem. Stand down, you monster! Trollala! I think I'm starting to tire him out! Based on the worldwide phenomenon. Hiya, class. I'm your cool little teacher. Not some scary guy with a secret evil agenda. Guys, I totally got this. Yeah, totally, he's got it. Kevin Hart, Ed Helms, Thomas Middleditch, Nick Kroll. When it's cut all together like that, you really get a sense of the scope. DreamWorks, Captain Underpants. Poor soul, you're trapped in some sort of invisible box-like prison. Is it okay that I'm kind of loving this? Yes and no. I will set you free. Oh, but mostly yes. We go delirious. All right. Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. Uh, All right, this movie came out in 2017, so we're a few years behind the actual freshness of it. So, But hey, again, if you're on the uh, fence, (laughs) not sure what you want to do. 
This is on Netflix right now. Came out in 2017. Is directed by David Soren. Screenplay by Nicholas Stoller. You know Nicholas Stoller. Uh, if you don't know Nicholas Stoller, he directed Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, you know, Neighbors. Neighbors 2. We like Nicholas Stoller on the Hoopercast, generally. Um, based on the books, Captain Underpants by Dave Plikey. Pilkey? Pilkey, sorry. Dave Pilkey. Um, starring and voicing Kevin Hart, Ed Helms, Nick Kroll, Thomas Middleditch, Jordan Peele, and Kristen Schaal. Um, so this was a movie by Fox back when it was still Fox. And um, yeah, so this, uh, again, this is on Netflix. And the reason I watched this, I don't I don't have an attachment to this property other than um, my it was my daughter's turn to pick movie night. And so she said, I really want to watch Captain Underpants. It just dropped on Netflix and we still have Netflix for the time being. So I was like, sure. So it was our it was our movie night thing. And so I watched it with her and my son. And so um, and it was fun. Uh, I don't have notes on this. I just I watched it recently. I wasn't sure how I was going to fit this into the show and where I was going to put it. And then lo and behold, here I am talking about it. So I'm leading off tonight with Captain Underpants. So the movie is about um, these the two main kids from the books. We've got um, uh, George and Harold. They're fourth graders and uh, they like to prank a lot. And they're amazingly prolific comic book writers. Um, one of them is really good at writing stories. The other is the artist who really likes to illustrate them. So they have this character, Captain Underpants, they created. And they modeled him after their principal, Mr. Krupp, who they hate because he sucks. And um, so they pull one prank too far one day at school and they get caught by Mr. Krupp. Finally, he's got evidence. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to separate you. So you're going to be in separate classrooms and you won't be able to be friends anymore. <laughs> He's such a cruel man. He decided, you know what, the, which is not an unreal. I'm going to say right now, I do not blame him, nor am I hating the idea. If you have to put up with what these boys put him through at that school, I'm sorry. I'm firmly on Mr. Krupp's side. He is well within his rights to just put them in separate homerooms. But of course... When you're a kid and your best friend gets moved to a different class than you, they may as well live on Mars. So they're going to get separated. They're upset about it. And before it can happen, before he signs the permission slip, they hypnotize him and they end up just making him do all these crazy things. And so at some point, one of them suggests we should make him pretend to be Captain Underpants. So they snap their fingers and then he thinks he's Captain Underpants. So he takes off his clothes, puts on the cape and he says the catchphrase, and then he goes around pretending like he's Captain Underpants. So what the boys uh, end up figuring out is that Mr. Krupp's a whole lot nicer when he's Captain Underpants. So they just convince Captain Underpants that he has to have a secret identity as Mr. Kroll. I'm sorry, I said, man, I don't know how long. Nick Kroll's in this movie. I've been saying Kroll, I think, for the last couple of minutes. The boys convince Captain Underpants that Mr. Krupp is his secret identity and he needs to dress like him and pretend to be him uh, and just lay low while they look for crime to solve. And so for them, they've replaced their principal with a nicer version of himself. Um, but Mr. Krupp can be awoken by being wet. So if it rains or someone spills something on him or any other wacky scenario where water gets on him, he snaps out of it. Anyway, in the meantime, there's this um, evil like German scientist villain 
who's uh, who's snuck into the who's weaseled his way onto the staff of the school, and he's going to make this horrible machine that's going to uh, take away everyone's ability to to laugh and stuff. So it's a it's a wacky premise. It's just like the books. I have read these to my daughter before. Uh, when she was younger and uh, she's always enjoyed the Captain Underpants books. And so she, she's, she's really into comedy and stuff. So she uh, has a lot of exposure to these stories. And I'm, so I'm watching it. And from what I can tell from the source material and from this, this is very faithful to the source material, the animation, the character design, it's all true to the books, the writing and the characterization of everybody. It's very much like the books. It's wacky. There's certain parts that, it's, it's interesting because I wouldn't say that this is like laugh out loud funny, like, oh, this is up there with Puss in Boots, The Last Wish or, you know, prestige animation like Pixar. But what it is, is a faithful adaptation of its source material um, and good for kids. Like I couldn't sit down and watch this with Dustin. I, we could both appreciate it, but we're not as two adults. We're not going to enjoy this movie the way you do when you watch it with kids. So this really is a family movie because there's plenty of jokes here that you'll kind of like chuckle at, but the kids will really enjoy. Like at one point it was actually pretty funny and it was, <laughs> I laughed because my daughter was anticipating it. She said, this is the funniest part of the movie and she's trying to hold it in. And at one point, like Mr. Krupp is directing it's Captain Underpants as Mr. Krupp is directing all of these um, kids who are sitting on whoopee cushions and it's like the ode to joy, but it's fart. So it's like, it's, it's the stupidest thing in the world, but because my kids enjoyed it so much, I enjoyed it. But if I sat there with like other adult friends, we'd just be sitting there watching this silly thing happening. Um, so, um, so it, it is for families. So I wouldn't recommend you just sit alone and watch this by yourself if you're <laughs> if you're middle aged. Um, but if you have children, especially if they are fans of the books, uh, I think they would enjoy this. I think you would too, just by extension. Um, and the voice cast is great. Thomas Middleditch and Kevin Hart are really good as these two little kids, these friends. Ed Helms is really good as Captain Underpants. He he's barely recognizable as the voice and uh Nick Kroll is really great as um <laughs> as the evil scientist professor PP diarrhea stein poopy pants esquire <laughs> he's great um his german accent's really good um, his line delivery is really funny. They give him a lot of things to say to sort of wink at the adults who are watching. Um, so he's, he does the, he, it, in terms of the writing, he does the villain work perfectly. So this is, this is, this is enjoyable. If you've never seen it and you had, again, if you have kids and they know the books, it's on Netflix, you should check it out. I recommend it. I, I do. I recommend it. There you go. I said it. Can I have my check now? Can I have my money? Oh, thank you. All right. We're going to switch gears because we got a couple of R-rated movies to talk about from my 2003 list. So um, I'm, I generally, for those of you who, who, who know or don't know, rather, um, those who listen to the show know that every year I like to watch a list of movies that came out 20 years prior. Uh, so I'm building my list. We're getting towards the, uh, you know, we're in the third quarter here of the year. We're going to be into the fall, uh, you know, 
before we know it. And I want to have my list watched and completed and ranked. So I've been building my list of 20 year films. I've already got like a top 15. I'm only going to read the top 10 on the, well, I'm not going to read, I'll read all of them if they, if I have something to say about all the films, but I'm I'm just sort of softly committing to ranking a top 10 of these things. So I've got it built, but I still have more movies to watch. So there are things that are in the top slots right now. They're getting slid down every time I watch something. So I'm not going to tell you where these movies are on my list because they may not stay there. Um, but again, we needed to fill an episode this week and uh, I have stuff that I've watched. So I want to talk about a couple of them, All right? I want to talk first about Kill Bill Volume 1. Not too long ago, I was quite the professional. My friends and I, we were the creme de la creme in an exclusive industry. And we all worked for this man, Bill. Then one day, I decided to leave, settle down, and start a new life. But when I tried to get out, they did me in. Don't you ever wake up. I guess they should have tried a little harder. So I suppose it's a little late for an apology, huh? You suppose correctly. Now it's kill or be killed. You have every right to want to get even. Get even? Even, Stephen? I would have to kill you. That'd be about square. And I choose kill. Mommy, I'm home. Hey, baby. How was school? One ticket to Tokyo, please. One way. That woman deserves her revenge. And we deserve to die. No kidding, I heard it was kind of hard. Silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. Yeah. Oh. Any more subordinates for me to kill? Did. All right. Kill Bill volume one. Uh, you guys know Kill Bill. Uh, you should. I mean, it's I'd be surprised people who don't know that, at least from Quentin's movies. Quentin Tarantino, by the way, is the Quentin I'm referring to. This came out in 2003, directed and written by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, we've got a great cast here starring Uma Thurman, Lucy Liu, Vivica A. Fox, Michael Madsen, Daryl Hannah, David Carradine, Sonny Chiba, Julie Dreyfus, not Julia, Louis Dreyfus, Julie Dreyfus. Um, so this movie um, was a Miramax film and it, uh, yeah, came out in 2003. So technically it's Kill Bill Volume 1. So of course there's a Volume 2. I'll talk about that next year because it came out in 04, even though these movies were written shot and conceived of as one film, it became two volumes, two parts. And that's because of Harvey Weinstein of Miramax. Harvey Weinstein 
was notorious for wanting to cut down the runtime of movies. And so, um, he was the one who suggested that Tarantino split the film in two. And for him, his argument was, look, other, if you're not, you're gonna have to cut scenes that you don't want to cut. And Tarantino was like, yep, I don't want to cut scenes that I'm going to have to cut. Yeah. Including this anime sequence, which you don't want to lose from this movie. Tarantino told IGN at the time, I'm talking about scenes that are some of the best scenes in the movie, but in this hurtling pace where you're trying to tell only one story, that would have been the stuff that would have had to go. But to me, that's kind of what the movie is, are these little detours and these little grace notes. So it was split. The movies came out six months apart. So similar to like Matrix 2 and 3 and, well, the original plan for Spider-Man whatever across the spider-verse part one like that said like it was meant to come out within a few months of this and uh, of course that's not the case for spider-man anymore but it was for this so again this uh this part one here came out in october 2003 so kill bill volume two came out uh yeah six months later in april 2004 pretty interesting again i'll talk about that next year Oh, or in a few months, whatever. Um, but certainly when I make my list, if it makes my list, okay? Um, I've seen Kill Bill Volume 1 way more times than I've seen Volume 2, and I don't know why that is. Um, my memory probably makes me think that there's a lot more action in this one, so maybe that's why. Um, because I haven't seen this movie, I don't think, since I was like 17. Um, I I think I rented it once or twice when I was around that age because that's when I could see R rated films, but that was before I could appreciate it as a film at the time. I just appreciated it as, you know, gory action or bloody action, relatively mature things. People, you know, using foul language and, you know, we're, we get to see a plot and characters and people who aren't, you know, absolutely 100% good. You know, we got morally complex characters and I was really craving that by the time I was old enough to watch those movies because, I wasn't getting it anywhere else. Um, and, uh, this was one of the movies that gave that to me. And so I have memories of appreciating this film as a mature story, but not as much able to appreciate it as a craft, as a film. The movie, if you don't know, is about Uma Thurman's character, the bride, the bride wants revenge because she was done wrong by her former posse of fellow master assassins. Uh, she wakes up from a very long coma and she's got, she knows exactly who tried to get her and she knows who she's going after and why. And of course, Bill being one of them, the leader, the penultimate person she's going after, she wants to pick off the other people of the deadly vipers, her, her, uh, her attack squad, her assassination squad, uh, that she was a part of. So we don't know the bride's name at the time. She's just known as the bride. She has a code name, Black Mamba. Um, and she is going to hunt down the other people in the gang. So it could be the rewatch, but the movie's a tad slow when she goes to Japan to, to get this sword made. Um, but I wouldn't say that the film is uninteresting because it's a filmmaker taking his time. And like he's talking about those little moments, the little detours that make the film what it is that he didn't want to lose. Whether you like it or not, that's what this movie is. And it was marketed as like a straight action revenge slice them up movie. But as we know from Tarantino, it's not just that. Okay, it's an homage 
and appreciation for lesser known art form like sword making, crafting, and, you know, other forms of cinema. It's all wrapped around a familiar plot, you know, the revenge arc. And it's filled with colorful colorful characters that you don't always get in revenge movies. There's plenty of revenge movies that are straight action that are great, but you don't get deep characterization. You just get cannon fodder for the hero. A filmmaker taking his time, slowing down to appreciate the craft, the sword, you know, Japanese culture, Japanese lore. I do wish the film were quicker, I do, but it suits the film. There's plenty in this film that I don't prefer stylistically that I still appreciate because that's what Tarantino prefers. And that's what he wants the film to be. For instance, there's a lot of wire work in this movie and a lots of um, action that's inspired by Asian cinema. And I'm not wowed by that. I have no st- stylistic appreciation for that. I, I remember even younger and then older, like watching Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That's cool. I don't like that in action. I want my action to feel somewhat plausible. Um, I'm fine if you have, if you can float on, if you can float on, you know, on the air or you can run on tree branches weightless or you can do all these crazy things. But if it takes me out of the movie when I can tell that you're on wires. And so when you're like, you suddenly can flip up and you're standing on the back of a chair or something perfectly balanced, parrying a sword. I'm just like, that's an actor on a wire because the chair would fall because that's a fully grown person standing on the chair. So I have no appreciation for that, but I can put that aside and say that that's part of the style of this film And that's why it exists in the first place. Remember, without these things, Kill Bill doesn't exist. Without those elements being seen and appreciated and inspired, inspiring Quentin Tarantino, Kill Bill doesn't exist. And all the things that I do like about it don't exist either. I think Uma Thurman is great in the film. I think she's a really great lead. I read here in the uh, information about it that they part of the inspiration for her character was the Blondie character from um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly for Clint Eastwood. And... Um, and it was told that, uh, or rather the, the idea being that he portrays a whole character without really saying that many words. And the bride does not talk a lot in the movie. And I think that it's the strength of Uma Thurman's screen presence that kind of, you know, gives that, um, gives that gravitas to the character without her, her having to say a bunch of threatening things all the time. Uh, even though she narrates to, at some point, but it's exposition. You need it. There's no other way to get it. Um, interesting things about this movie. Um, they can, Quentin and Uma Thurman conceived of this character during the production of Pulp Fiction way back when they were working together on Pulp Fiction. So apparently Tarantino spent a year and a half writing the script while he was living in New York City in the early 2000s, like 01, uh, 2000 and 2001, spending a lot of time around Uma Thurman and her newborn daughter, Maya, that would be Maya Hawk, her daughter with actor Ethan Hawk. Maya Hawk, you may know from Stranger Things. She's great. Um, reuniting at that point after Pulp Fiction, once Uma Thurman was now mature and a mother, influenced the way Tarantino wrote the bride character because now his friend was in a different stage of life, and that informed, you know, the character because spoilers: the bride, in the course of all of what's happened to her, has lost a child has had a child and motherhood taken away from her. It's a big part of what drives her, uh, her revenge arc. Um, so there's that. Um, 
there's other things in here that's kind of cool that, you know, elements this character that ended up in Inglorious Bastards instead of in here. Um, you know, why the Bill role went to David Carradine and not Warren Beatty. Um, interesting things like this rivalry that the bride has with the Daryl Hannah character. Tarantino cast Daryl Hannah um, and noticed that they, there's a lot of physical similarities between her and Uma Thurman. And he thought that that would just subtly play into the rivalry between these characters, that they're just so similar of a type to Bill that that would automatically cause them to experience friction with each other. Um, Just subtle things like that. That's fun filmmaking stuff. There's a backstory for one of the deadly vipers characters, the Lucy Liu character talking about how she lost her parents and it's a flashback instead of just a flashback of her parents getting killed. That part of the film is an entire anime sequence. And I always used to think like, why? I don't understand. Why don't you just film it? And it's so much more sad and effective as anime. Um, The violence that's portrayed, you may not have been able to maybe get in live action without pushing the film into like NC-17. And there's a whole lot of craft to that anime sequence that I certainly would have hated to lose from the film. Um, Really great fighting, um, horribly heartbreaking sound design and, and just composite. It's, it's great. I mean, again, if you've seen this film, you know what I'm talking about. So uh, that's, that's a crazy, crazy sequence. Um, Yeah. Um, I like kill bill. I'm not going to reveal where it currently sits on my list. As I said, it may not stay there. Um, but this is one of those movies that I sort of in retrospect was thinking, man, that might be among Tarantino's. I want to say weakest. The guy's only made like nine movies, but you know, so I don't want to say weakest cause it's not, it's just, I wouldn't count it among his films that I love the most, but upon this rewatch, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I, I just, I can really latch on to the, the formula, the arc, the revenge arc as a compelling reason to keep watching and be invested in the bride, I can overlook overlong fascinations with Japanese culture and sword culture. Um, and us taking forever to get from here to there. Um, because I'm bought into the core of the movie and I'm bought into, and and I, I enjoy knowing that the film I'm watching was a process that the person who made it enjoyed it. If I had heard later that Quentin Tarantino hated shooting Kill Bill and there was a huge pain in the ass and and no one got along, I don't know that I can enjoy the film as much because I would just think, oh, I would just be thinking about that. But it, 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 you always get the sense when you watch his movies that they're exactly the way he wanted them to be. Again, the only exception here being that it was supposed to be one film, but it would have been like a four hour film. I'm sure somewhere like, I mean, there's a four episode version of hateful eight. I'm sure if Netflix existed in the mid 2000, well, it did. (laughs) I'm sure if Netflix, as we know today existed in the mid two thousands, there would be a four hour director's cut of kill bill, the complete story as a single film on there for people who wanted to experience that for me, two hours is plenty of runtime for a film. Um, and I don't mind having a volume one and volume two for a revenge arc. That's fine because you get some revenge in this movie. She just doesn't finish her journey. That's fine. That can sustain me. And the film still follows somewhat of a, of a structure that doesn't feel incomplete by the time it's over. It feels like, Oh cool. Onto the next stage. 
we've made some, we've made up some ground here and we're, we're going to push forward, you know? Um, of course, after I watch part two, we may, it may remain to be seen how I feel like that finishes the arc. Maybe it's too empty because all the meat was in this one. I don't know. I don't remember. I'll let you know after I watch part two in 2024. So, uh, that's Kill Bill volume one. Um, glad I rewatched it. One day I'm going to buy all of Tarantino's films on physical. And so this will obviously be a part of it. I can't think of one of his movies that I don't like. I still have not seen once upon a time in Hollywood because I have no interest. I'll watch it eventually, especially if I'm going to start buying these, but I love Reservoir Dogs is good. I love Pulp Fiction. I love Jackie Brown, Kill Bill one and two death proof. That's another one I've not seen in a long time. I'd have to rewatch Death Proof. And then after that, we got Inglorious Bastards, and which I love. Django Unchained, which is good. The Hateful Eight, which I love. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I haven't, you know, again, I haven't seen yet. So that's Kill Bill Volume 1. All right. I got one more. Another one from 2003. Who remembers Phone Booth? New York City. 12 million people, 22 million phones, a billion connections a day. I believe in you, man. Big Q, be reasonable. I'm a gangster. I don't gotta be reasonable. Cutting out. Hello, Big Q. Stu Shepard thought he had the game wired. Our business, tickets. Four for Britney Spears, right? No, you owe me, Stu. It's gotta be the night of the 18th, and I will deliver you a truckload of celebrities. But today... Someone's got his number. Yeah. Don't even think about leaving that booth. Wrong number, pal. I'm aiming at you right now. Can you feel it, Stu? Did you call me Stu? Who is this? Someone who enjoys watching you. I have a 30 caliber bolt action 700 with a handhold tactical scope. You mean like a rifle? At this range, the exit wound ought to be about the size of a small tangerine. You're bluffing. There's only one way to find out. Oh my God, you shot him. Look at all of the people, Stu. He's the shooter. I've seen him. It wasn't me. I love the girls and the money. What did I do to deserve this? How I me? If you have to ask, then you're not ready to know yet. Put down the gun and raise your hands. Where's the gun? You see a gun? I want to see you talk to one of your weapons. I didn't shoot anybody. I just want to hear your side of it. That's if all. you tell him, I will kill you. I ain't got no side of it. You're in this position because you're not telling the truth. I'm in this position because you've got a gun. Come on, Stu. Don't you get the game yet? Confess your sins, Stuart. Hang, hang up. Stu hasn't been totally honest with you. His wife looks very angry. He said he wasn't married. Leave her out of this. I have your wife here with me. This is exciting. You get to choose between them. Kelly, Pam, Bam, Bam. Get her out of here, right? Their position. I give the orders here. Look, I'm sure we can work this out. It's do or die time. One. Hold your fire! That's right, that phone booth. This film. Okay, it says it's technically a 2002 film because it premiered at 2002 Toronto Film Festival. It was supposed to be theatrically released in November 02, but because of the DC sniper attacks in October, Fox decided we're going to delay the release of the film because the film's about a sniper. Uh, and so it was released in the United States April 4th, 2003. So 
There you go. But I'm, but to me, I'm sorry. That's why you'd call it a 2003 film, even though film festival, this happens, you know, this happened to a number of films around nine 11. They technically had festival releases and all that kind of stuff. And then the theatrical got pushed because they had to do with explosions or bombs or terrorism or, you know, New York or buildings or whatever. And they all got pushed. So, um, so this similar story here, Anyway, so it goes on my 03 list because that's when it premiered. That's when the bulk of the people who saw this movie saw this movie. And that was in 03, baby. Um, This film was written by Larry Cohen, directed by Joel Schumacher. Didn't realize that. Crazy. Um, Starring Colin Farrell, Forrest Whitaker, Katie Holmes, Rada Mitchell, and the voice of Kiefer Sutherland as the caller so phone booth that was a movie this this was a movie that i saw trailers for i don't know where i saw them i don't know if i saw them on in front of dvds for other films i don't know if i saw a tv spot on television because you didn't see trailers for movies at this time unless you had home media you didn't just go online and look at trailers there wasn't a way to do that um so I don't know where I saw this, this for, but I remember this trailer. I remember if you hang up, I will kill you. And I remember, you know, uh, don't you get the game yet? Like, I remember all these lines from the trailer. Um, anyway, so I don't know, again, I don't know when I came to, into awareness of this. I obviously was too young to see it in theaters. So I think phone booth was just rented by me when I was old enough. Had to be. So the movie is about a publicist um, in New York City, played by Colin Farrell. His name's Stu. And Stu is the man with the plan. Stu knows everyone. He's playing everyone against each other. He's getting, you know, these magazines to cover these stars. And he's getting people to move around and put, you know, have your premiere party at this restaurant. And then that, because I owe that guy a favor. And he's just, he's just spiderwebbing all this stuff together, making it work. And, you know, just kind of making deals. He's a mover and a shaker, right? And he's just walking through the busy streets of New York on his, on these multiple cell phones, you know, call what's up magazine and call the New Yorker and blah, blah, blah. blah. He's just wheeling, dealing. He's just the guy who's got it all figured out. Um, and one day he's in a phone, he's in his a phone booth. He goes to all the time to call his, not his mistress, but his possibly upcoming mistress person, the person who's not his wife. Okay. And at a certain point phone rings and it's not her. It is Kiefer Sutherland's character. It's the caller. He starts asking him questions. And before you know it, he says, you know what? If you don't, if you hang up this phone, I'm going to kill you. And after some hemming and hauling, it becomes clear. He's serious. He has a rifle. He can see what Stu is doing. And he demonstrates that he has a working rifle by firing it multiple times. Sometimes he shoots an object. Sometimes he shoots a person. And the stakes are immediately clear. Can't get off the phone. Cops are showing up because they think Colin Farrell shot the person. So he's now their perp. He can't tell them it wasn't him. He can't say I'm on the phone with a sniper. Please help me. Or he'll be shot. And the whole movie is about getting Stu to confess his sins, essentially. 
Yeah, this film cost $13 million to make and made almost $100 million at the box office. So this was a hit for Fox. It's so funny because like immediately the film gets dated because in the first scene we're talking about cell phones and technology and stuff. And we have all these close-ups of these like super old phones that would have been dated even two years after this came out. I wrote in my notes, Colin Farrell is New York as fuck in this movie. No, what did I do to deserve this? No, Mario, you never, hey, you never, you never asked me if I was married, Pam. He's just, the way he's talking is just so like, whatever, wherever he's from, the Bronx, I think he says, like, he's just, you know, he's, he's good. You know, Colin Farrell, again, at this point, I didn't realize the man was Irish. And so like, I just, I just liked Colin Farrell. I had no clue that he was just this good. Um, But Stu is one of those characters who just can go through life just, improvising everything and it always works out because he thrives in high pressure situations. He thinks of stuff. He, he's clever like that. And that cleverness aids him getting himself through this situation. Um, but not his dishonesty. That doesn't help. Uh, Stu is on trial by this sniper for just being a scumbag, just an, just a f- piece of shit asshole. That's what he's on trial for. So it's a movie, but it's a morality tale script. And it's also, I would say the film's fault is it's a false morality tale because the killer is claiming that always claiming Stu brought this on himself. You know, you're in here, Stu, because you're dishonest. That's why I picked you. Keyword there being, I picked you. This is the, he's gaslighting him. (laughs) Don't blame me for you being held at gunpoint in public and, you know, possibly being thought a murderer, Stu. This is happening because you're a jerk. And I noticed. So if I noticed, then that's, hey, it's your fault. Um, no, uh, no, because it's obviously not his fault that he's trapped in a phone booth on the phone with a sniper. He's yes, guilty of being a prick, but this is the, it's just the stupid justification that all self-righteous sociopaths use. You know, it's not my fault that I'm having to act crazy. Um, I'm acting crazy because I don't like that you're getting away with being a rule breaker, whether it's the social contract or literal laws. I don't like it. So I have to take action as a vigilante. So once the movie ends, we can't really be grateful to the shooter for giving Stu this wake-up call because he didn't enlighten Stu. Like, Stu is not going to walk away from this feeling gratitude as I think that part of what you're supposed to feel is, hey, well, you got a second chance, you know, or, or, you know, it's good that you were taught this lesson. Like, Stu's been traumatized. (laughs) So it's an early 2000s film, morality tale, so I have hope that Stu learns but if you were to talk to like a, 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 a therapist about this, they would say this whole experience would probably make Stu's behavior worse. <laughs> this, this, this trauma, this horrible trauma he's been put through. But Colin Farrell knocks it out of the park. He just, he's, he's the reason to see this movie, which is on Hulu right now. It's still worth a watch. If you never saw Phone Booth, watch it. You know, it's, it's an all-in-one location type of story. So, and it, it kind of unfolds in real time. Someone pointed out that it has a lot in common with 24, obviously also starring Kiefer Sutherland because we've got like, you know, we've got multiple frames and pictures playing out, moving around on screen, showing stuff that's happening while this character's talking instead of just simple coverage, like, you know, 
person talking on the phone, they're on camera, and then we cut somewhere else while they're talking. So we're listening to them while we're watching an alternate shot. We do that. There's traditional stuff here, but there's also a whole lot of like panel movement and multiple shots on camera on, on the screen at the same time just to communicate this is all definitely happening in real time. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, sometimes, you know, the characters looking clearly at that thing that we're seeing in, a, in the other frame, but their reactions are not in time with it. There's plenty of phone conversations in this movie that don't quite line up right, especially early on. Stu's on the phone with Katie Holmes and his reactions and his performance is not quite matching the speed of hers. And so that can get a little annoying, but it obviously works enough. I just, I just sit there and go like, God, this would have been easy to make it work. Just cut to an alternate angle of him and just, you know, cheat the, cheat the time by a couple of seconds and just get it to match better. It just felt off. Um, so I don't know. There's just certain choices that would have been easy to fix that weren't. And so it just makes it feel a little sloppy. Um, so I don't know. Um, Fun story about this movie, one of the reasons I have such memories of it is I remember showing this to friends at my parents' house when I was, whatever, 17, and my parents made me feel very embarrassed about it uh, at a certain point because I invite friends over um, and, you know, a number of them are girls, you know, not, I mean, two of them, but like I have friends over. I've got like five or so people over at my house, my parents' house. And, you know, I think at the time I may have had a crush on one of these girls. I don't know, but they were certainly like, you know, Hey, I'm hosting this, watching a movie at my house. We only did this one time. It's so weird to look back at high school and think like, how did this even come about? Like, how did they agree to this? Like, why did they agree to this? Anyway, they're in my house eating my popcorn and we've got the, we've got the living room all set up and commandeered. My parents are doing other things at a certain point in this movie you know, the caller is using very explicit language talking about what Stu wants to do to wants to do sexually with this actress. And he's using, he's using very explicit language. And I remember at the time, like in the middle thinking like, oh, okay, that's maybe this is a little awkward to be in here with like other high school, you know, high school age girls. Maybe this isn't quite the kind of language or, you know, content I want to be sitting here watching with them. Again, it's just talk. And it serves the story. But when you're a teenager and you're raised in a house where that's like not something you talk about or not the way you speak, it feels all of a sudden really like self-conscious. And my mom pulled me aside when was like, hey, can you help me in the kitchen with something? And she was like, what are y'all watching? I was like, it's phone booth. It's just a movie about a, a sniper who's got this guy at gunpoint. To their credit, they didn't like storm in and say, turn the movie off. That would have been excessive. But I felt super embarrassed about it. And they're like, pretty much like, what the hell? What is this? So you didn't tell me you're going to watch like a rated R film. It's like, well, we're all old enough to watch this. What's the problem? The problem is my parents didn't want to hear that language because I don't think the girls had a problem with it. So anyway, I don't know why I told you that. But I I always remember that when I watched this movie because the shame, <laughs> the shame I was meant to feel ran so deep. And uh, I never got rid of it, apparently. Maybe I will by telling it to you. Now you can think about it. I've I've continued the cycle, the cycle of shame. All right. That's going to be it for this episode. That's all I'm doing. That's it. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you never saw any of those movies, check them out. They're all worth it. And uh, yeah. Okay. Um, next episode will be something. It'll certainly be something. Till then, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And go enjoy some stuff that you like.
because that's what I'm going to do. As soon as I turn off this recording, as soon as I get off this microphone, uh, you bet your butt. There you go, mom. You bet you I'm going to go enjoy something fun. Cheers. See you next time.